welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game, and occasionally a 5200 game, and see if that story bites is bad. My name is Bill, this is episode 307? Yes indeed, 307 of these gosh darn things. This episode is all about countermeasure, which we'll get to in a minute. First, we have some unfinished business, some, uh, some old business, some, uh, some lingering thoughts to impart about the last episode, which was Sinistar. I'm jumping right into that because as I was preparing for the episode today, it was bugging me because I had a thing I wanted to open the episode with. I was going to tell you guys, and now I can't remember what it was. Ooh, le corn! Qu'est-ce que tu veux que je fasse? Que dalle! I don't know. So we're going to get right into feedback. I will think of the thing later. If it's a really good thing, as it turns out, maybe I'll edit it in and seamlessly weave it into the tapestry that is this podcast, and you'll never know the difference, except you'll probably be able to tell, you know, slight changes in the audio quality or the tone of my voice or me saying, you know, this is me from the future talking to you, something like that. Or if it turns out the thing I was going to say comes back to mind, but I realize that's actually kind of lame. Uh, maybe I will spare you. In the meantime, here's some feedback. I heard from good friend Jim Goble, he of Pie Factory Podcast. He had thoughts about Sinistar and then wrapped up uh, with some thoughts about countermeasure. Let's see. Here's what Jim wrote. Sinistar in the 2600 is indeed a valiant attempt to bring the game to the venerable console, but there's one very important gameplay mechanic that is in the arcade version that was left out of the 2600 version. In the arcade, the Cinnabombs, uh, I could go for a Cinnabon right now, frosting dripping down the sides, and nice cup of coffee, and sorry, I get confused. The Cinnabomb in the arcade version homed in on the Cinnastar no matter what direction you were facing. On the 2600 version, the Cinnabombs travel in a straight line behind your ship. This makes the 2600, 2600 version harder than the arcade. Jim goes on to suggest checking out the 8-bit 5200 version which is a tad easier than the arcade and has the voice. I don't remember, I'm sure I said this last time, I don't remember playing the arcade version. I feel like the voice would be kind of cool. I have a 5200 now, which I've mentioned once or twice, so perhaps I will seek that out. So thanks for that, Jim. Jim also uh, had a tip for Countermeasure, this episode's game. Uh, you need the overlay and manual for this one. This is a real fun tank game. Bob DiCrescenzo ported it to the 7800 under the name Failsafe. Uh, that I didn't know. I will seek that out for my 7800, which we're going to get to, by the way. I, I've kind of set that aside, but don't worry. We'll come back to games for that as well. As for the overlays, I did, actually on Jim's suggestion, I did seek out the overlays. And I learned, uh, one, that you use overlays with the 5200. And two, those little notches on the back of 5200 cartridges are to hold the overlays. When I went to, uh, I already had a countermeasure cartridge, but no overlays. But then when Jim suggested, hey, stupid, you need the overlays, he was nicer than that. I went looking. And as all people do, when you're looking for used stuff, you go to eBay. Maybe I could have found them somewhere else, but that was the easiest thing to do. Uh, and I found cheap ones, except they also came with a cartridge. It was still a pretty good deal. So I bought them, and the guy who mailed them to me, thank you guy who mailed them to me, had the overlays inserted into that little notch on the back of the 5200 cart. And I realized then the 5200 cartridges I have pretty much all have that little notch. And I never really realized what it was for. 
that's what it's for. So now I know. The overlays did help a little bit. Uh, I'll get to that here in a minute when we talk about this week's game. Uh, you know what? Screw it. Let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is Countermeasure for Atari 1983, the 5200 version. Specifically, we already know that Bob DiCrescenzo worked on this, thanks to Jim. Uh, and thanks, by the way, Jim, for the feedback. Here's my first thought, my first impression of Countermeasure before I even get into anything else. Why is the title of the game, Countermeasure, all one word? It kind of bugs me. Certainly countermeasures are a thing, it's not like a made-up word, words, but in the title of the game, it's countermeasure, one word. I don't understand. Linguists out there, perhaps, can help me with that. Jim is right, of course. You do need the manual for this, and as we traditionally do, I will kind of walk you through the manual a little bit for the few of you out there who don't know about this game. The cover has, it's your basic gray Atari 5200 manual, the Atari uh, 5200 name in, in uh, blueprint, countermeasure, all one word, trademark, sort of a, a creepy haunting little photo of a, a dude at a like, a, like a radar screen or something, perhaps tracking nuclear missiles coming into DC. In the background, you have sort of this eerie orange light through the the clouds and fighter jets taking off and stuff all very chilling stuff atari welcomes your comments please address all correspondence to atari customer relations 1312 crossman avenue sunnyvale california 940086 um i'm guessing that's not the right address anymore if anyone back in the day ever wrote to atari customer relations let me know and tell me what they said this manual is long enough that there's an actual table of contents and then we get into the story I do love a good story here on the podcast. Condition Red. Attention, all super tank units. We've just received word the terrorists have seized one of our missile silo complexes and are threatening to blow up Washington, D.C. These lunatics aren't fooling. They've wired the missiles to a silo computer and started the launch sequence timer. In just 10 minutes, the missiles will lift off for Washington unless you stop them. Destroy all the silos in the complex with your long-range turret gun before the timer runs out. If you complete this mission, you'll win the Congressional Medal of Honor, allowing 10,000 bonus points and a bonus life. I have many questions. One, why just you? This seems like a pretty big threat. You'd think they'd put another person on this. Two, they say that there's one, uh, the missiles are, the, the missile silo that they've taken over. Well, all right, so they say one missile silo complex. I guess that could be more than one silo, right? Because that was my point. I thought they were saying one missile silo, but clearly in the game there are many of them. So they've wired the missiles to a silo computer and started the launch sequence. Wouldn't you just program the, the hack into the silo computer and tell the missiles to do something? Why would you wire anything to the missiles? I don't understand. If anyone knows how nuclear missiles work, or more importantly worked, in 1983, all I know about 1983 era nuclear missiles is what I learned from war games. Man, that's a good movie. Ooh, maybe I could do for my uh, end-of-the-year movie, even though it's not a direct tie to this game, I could do War Games for uh, for my end-of-the-year movie review. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, so DC is in big trouble. Uh, gonna get wiped out. Insert your joke about politics here. The manual goes on to tell us that if the timer runs out before you destroy all the silos, you still have a chance to prevent disaster. If in the seconds before impact, dock your super tank at a silo... Enter the war room and guess the fail-safe code that disarms the missiles. The code is some combination of the letters L, E, and O. For example, E-L-L, O-O-O, or O-L-E, and one presumes E-L-O, 
as well. Succeed and you win 10,000 bonus points and a bonus life. Fail and, well, you'll find out. Um, I like the way the manual, I, I like that line. Well, you'll find out. This, of course, is why you need the overlay. So that you, you know which keys on your keypad, on your controller, because you really do have to use the 5200 controller for this. You have to know which keys to push. Uh, having to use the uh, 5200 controller is a little frustrating, of course, because of the common complaints about the joystick not centering and it's frustrating to move the tank. I had a hard time moving the tank in this game uh, the way I wanted to. I just kind of had to fake it a little bit and go in the general direction of what I intended, as you'll see in the field report. Uh, those of you who are watching the field report, those of you who are listening to the field report, just assume that I'm doing everything amazingly well. Uh, the gameplay. What you're looking at on the screen is a scrolling map. The scrolling map shows you the seven sites in the missile silo complex. Each silo contains each site contains a silo, a supply depot, which you'll need for refueling, so you dare not accidentally blow it up, which I did many, many times. Um, there are four or five pillboxes strategically placed to protect the silo and supply depot, and they are mean, let me tell you. For those of you non-military types, a pillbox is a type of blockhouse or concrete dug-in guard post normally equipped with loopholes through which defenders can fire weapons. It's like a trench hardened to protect against small arms fire and grenades and raised to improve the field of fire. The modern concrete pillbox originated on the Western Front in the German Army in 1916. The origin of the term pillbox is disputed. It's been widely assumed. I'm getting all this from the internet, by the way. It has been widely assumed to be a jocular reference to the perceived similarity of the fortifications to the cylindrical and hexagonal boxes in which medical pills were once sold. Also, the first German concrete pillboxes discovered by the Allies in Belgium were so small and light they were easily tilted or turned upside down by the nearby explosion of even medium 244mm shells. The internet tells me that it's more likely that the term originally alluded to pillar boxes, with a comparison being drawn between the loophole on the pillbox and the letter slot on the pillar box. A pillar box being a type of freestanding post box found in the UK and British overseas territories. A mailbox, basically. So there you go. So there are four or five of these things spread out across the map that you're driving through. It's a very basic looking screen uh, driving across this map. But it does the job. And it actually kind of, the, the colors, the, the dark shades and stuff, actually kind of lend to the eerie quality that this game seems to a achieve, in my mind. Um, when you press start, the computer selects one of the sites at random and places your super tank at the bottom of the television screen. As your tank travels to the top uh, of the site, the map scrolls to reveal another site. You have three lives. You get a bonus every 10,000 points. Your long-range turret gun rotates 360 and moves independently of the tank body. You move fast in the open, slower in the fields, and slowest through woods and towns. I didn't survive in the game long enough to make it to a town. The terrorists control all of the silo defenses, including the pillboxes, the remote-controlled tanks and jeeps, and the cruise missiles. Anything you hit with your turret gun explodes and becomes a pile of burning rubble, which looks kind of cool on screen. You can drive through the debris, though it may be slow. The longer you survive, the harder the terrorists try to stop you, uh, which just makes sense. Super tanks explode when they run out of fuel. There is a fuel gauge 
on the screen. It's at the bottom, I believe, and it's green as long as you have fuel, but once you start running out, it turns red. To refuel, you'd have to drive up to Supply Depot, which kind of looks just like a big column, like a pillar or a big column that you would drive up to. Not a pillar like a UK mailbox, a pillar like uh, a thing that holds up your roof kind of thing. After refueling, the fuel gauge turns green, and the uh, manual notes that the colors may vary depending on your TV control settings. In addition to fuel, you pick up fail-safe clues at supply depots. One letter of the code in its correct position appears in the center of your fuel gauge. The computer gives clues at random. Don't count on getting all three code letters, even if you reach all seven supply depots. I did not, in the little bit that I played, get any of the clues. I did, however. It's not the field report round of the game, unfortunately, but the f- I think it was the first time I played the game. I went to the missile silo, and I punched in the code, and I got it right on the first time. I mean, granted, there's only three letters, but that's however many combinations that is. According to the internet, you can arrange three letters six times. Three, uh, you can arrange three different letters six different ways. Still, if you're eight playing your Atari game, that's a lot of pressure, man. So you can get these uh, clues occasionally. If your tank gets too close to a silo, you'll be transported into the war room and have to guess the failsafe code, ready or not. The game continues until you run out of lives, whether your mission succeeds or fails. If a life remains at the end of a mission, the terror sees another site silo complex, which just doesn't seem fair to me. If you have no lives left at the end of a mission, the computer resets to the scrolling map. Press start to begin a new game. You can also play with two players. You alternate turns, basically each time you lose a life. Score counters, lives remaining counters, and the highest game score appear at the top of the television screen. Zapping silos after the launch sequence timer runs out is cause for court-martial and dishonorable discharge from the Super Tank Corps. If you destroy the last silo after the timer runs out, you forfeit the 10,000 bonus points and bonus life. I'm not sure how that works. If the launch sequence timer runs out, the missile launches. And in my experience, the little bit of experience I have, what happens on screen is a skull and crossbones appears on the, the radar screen that you're looking at, and it, there's some eerie music. That actually is kind of chilling. So I'm not sure how you would destroy the uh, silo after the launch sequence runs out. Because if you're successful... Uh, in aborting the launch, then you just go back to the map and start over again. Keypad overlay has the three buttons for L, E, and O. It also has a button to tell if you're playing with one or two players, button for what skill level you want, and a button for auto tank versus stop tank. I didn't really fuss with any of those buttons other than the one player button. The auto tank stop tank feature, the game is basically preset to auto tank in which the super tank keeps moving when you press the bottom red button to turn the gun. In the stop tank version, super tank stops when you press the bottom red button to turn the turret gun. The top button presses, uh, press that to fire your gun. The bottom button presses it to turn the gun with the joystick. I basically just left it on auto tank. I didn't really fuss with the stop tank version. I don't know if that would have been easier or not. Use the joystick to drive the tank and turn the gun. Hold in the bottom red button to turn the gun. Release the button to drive the tank. The turret gun is independent and the tank of the tank and remains set when you move the tank. There are 10 skill levels from 0 to 9. The higher the level, the faster the game. Tips. Keep moving. Duh. As everyone knows, a moving target is harder to hit. You may prefer the auto tank option to stop tank at higher skill levels. Remember your goal. The primary objective is to destroy all the silos before the timer runs out. You'll never make it if you go after every pillbox and supply depot. Just concentrate on the stuff that's in your way, basically. At the start of a game, pillboxes rotate twice before they start firing at you. Take advantage of this to zap one or two. You can also draw their fire and then go for them while their guns are rotating away from you. 
but watch out for crossfire from other pillboxes. Yeah, I got nailed in the crossfire a lot. You can shoot diagonally, which is what I did most of the time because I had a hard time turning the gun. Your turret gun shoots further when its line of fire is diagonal to the tighter. Target. Or tighter. Although, why you'd want to shoot a tighter, I don't know. When cruise missiles start looking for you, for you, trees and buildings are your best defense. I don't really understand that tip because I think elsewhere in the manual it says that trees don't protect you. So I'm confused. But still, that is how you play. Countermeasure for the Atari 5200, 1983. I'm not rich or famous. I'm not a movie star, rock icon, first responder, nurse, doctor, or anybody else whom we all look up to. I'm just a schnook. Just like Bill, I love to tell stories. Unlike Bill, though, I'm not creative enough to write my own, so I just tell my own real-life stories in this book-read-by-the-author-style podcast, all about life lessons growing up, and every episode, a segment about music. Music that I love, artists that I admire, and sometimes even my own music. You can find Autobiography of a Schnook on all your favorite podcast suppliers, or you can go to schnookpodcast.com. That's S-C-H-N-O-O-K podcast.com. And I firmly believe the good goes around, and I sincerely hope that Autobiography of a Schnook proves to be some good that goes around your way. Atari Protos tells us that Leo Salinas and John Segers programmed this game. Alan Murphy did the graphics. And that the original title was Failsafe, I think, uh, which makes sense, because I think Jimmy was saying that the 7800 version was also called Failsafe. I may have misstated that. Whatever I said earlier about that, just go by that. So Proto says that the 5200 launched in 82 with a, a small library of games. Over time, it came up with a fair number of sports, action, and, art- and arcade titles, but needed a good war game. So they planned for the release of a game called Tank when the 5200 launched, but... For some reason, that game never happened. So they needed a game to fill the void, and that game was Countermeasure. Regarding that skull graphic, which, as I said, is really pretty creepy, Proto says that recently a prototype of the skull graphic was discovered on a disc in the collection of former Atari artist Jerome Domerat, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. This skull appears to be exactly the same as the final skull graphics, with the exception of a lit cigarette hanging out of its mouth. It's doubtful Atari would allow smoking to be shown in one of its games, so it's most likely just a joke mocked up for fun. The skull was later reused in the Atari XE game Crime Buster, but with Alan's initials removed. This game may not be the in-depth war strategy game some people were hoping for, but Countermeasure is an interesting mix of action strategy and a little luck. It's also a 5200 exclusive, never ported to another system, perhaps due to the unique control scheme that Countermeasure used, which wouldn't have been possible on other systems, with only one fire button. Countermeasure truly is one of the sleeper hits of the 5200 and is one of the better titles for the system. Atari HQ says Countermeasure does use many of the buttons on the 5200 controller, but is not a great candidate to showcase the sophistication and originality of the 5200 games. It may be one of the reasons not too many other original games were released for for the 5200, but is still a pretty good game. HQ talks a little bit about the uh, shooting the pillboxes and whatnot, but then says that the second way to complete the mission is what makes Countermeasure a good game, and not a bad one. The part about being able to enter the, uh, the code into the missile silos. If you fail, Washington is blown up and there's some cool death music and a giant skull and crossbones to remind you of how foolish you were to try to crack the code. Why didn't you simply destroy all the silos like you would in any other game? 
The answer is sobering. Your super tank moves so agonizingly slow over most terrain that you would happily risk world destruction rather than seek out all seven silos. That's sad, the sadly slow movement is the Achilles heel of countermeasure. Overall, though it seems Atari was more concerned with creating a game which used more than one button than with making countermeasure a really fun game, it still manages to be enjoyable. Slightly better graphics, a four-letter code instead of the easy three-letter one, and a speedier super tank would have made this game much better, but it's still decent despite these defects. Distractions. Detractions. Reading is hard, people. FreezeNet says that a big problem with this game is the controls. While you can move in all eight directions, if you move in one direction, the game will automatically push the tank in the opposite direction when you aren't moving the joystick. This requires a movement of, a moment of randomly moving the joystick around in all directions to fix this. Otherwise, it's annoying to work around. The controls are not the most intuitive either. One button fires while the other positions the main cannon. The cannon will change the to the direction you happen to be moving and moving in at that point in time. This can enable fast movement of the cannon, but you do often spend time just reconfiguring the orientation just to make it workable for the next tar target. Spend so much time trying to figure out figure this all out that the fun just got sucked out of the experience. Even when I won a round, the game still gradually got more and more boring before another lucky shot from an enemy made me decide to just set the controller down and switch off the power. The sound effects are fairly basic. Nothing huge here. Overall, this is one of those games to pass over on. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. Before we move on to the field report, I thought I would share with you, you know, on this eve of Washington, D.C.'s destruction, some fun facts for kids about Washington, D.C. George Washington never lived in D.C. The White House was completed a year after he died, and the second U.S. president was the first to live there. The statue of Andrew Jackson in Lafayette Square, directly across from the White House, was partially made from British cannons that were taken in the War of 1812. It was also the first equestrian statue made in the U.S., the White House has a total of 35 bathrooms. George Washington was supposed to be buried at the U.S. Capitol, but his will stated that he wanted to be buried at his home, Mount Vernon, just outside of D.C. in Virginia. You can pay your respects today when you tour his home and estate. I think I've actually been to Mount Vernon as a kid. Uh, you should go. It's kind of cool. The original phone number for the White House in 1878 was simply the number 1. <laughs> that makes me laugh. A phone wasn't installed in the president's on the president's desk in the Oval Office until 1929. The only president buried in D.C. is Woodrow Wilson, who was entombed at the Washington National Cathedral. When Abraham Lincoln stayed at the soldiers' home during summers, he would often commute the four miles to and from the White House on horseback. Cats and dogs haven't been the only presidential pets to run the White House grounds. Theodore Roosevelt allowed his six children to bring their pets to the White House in 1901. Along with dogs, they had a bear a lizard, a guinea pig, uh, multiple guinea pigs apparently, a pig, a badger, a blue macaw, a garter snake, 
a one-legged rooster, a hyena, a barn owl, a rabbit, a pony, and Baron Spreckle, the hen. Coolidge also had many dogs, including terriers, a sheepdog, collies, and chows, but also cats, raccoons, a donkey, a bobcat, bears, uh, a bear, birds, an antelope, a wallaby, a pygmy hippo, and some lion cubs. Woodrow Wilson during World War I brought a flock of sheep to graze on the White House lawn. It helped save the manpower needed for mowing the lawn, and they could sell the wool to raise money for the Red Cross. The D.C. War Memorial, honoring local residents of D.C., is the only memorial dedicated to World War I on the National Mall. There's a bathtub in the basement of the U.S. Capitol. Four marble tubs were installed in 1859, when most senators lived in boarding houses on Capitol Hill that had no running water, so they washed at work. When the Washington Monument opened in 1884, it was the tallest structure in the world until the Eiffel Tower in Paris took that title in 1889. The Library of Congress is the largest library in the world, with more than 162 million objects in its collection, and the collection is constantly growing, with approximately 12,000 items added daily. The original Declaration of Independence, U.S. Constitution, and Bill of Rights are on display, or at least you can look at them, at the National Archives. The Statue of Freedom is the bronze statue at the top of the U.S. Capitol dome. It looks like it looks small from afar, but it's more than 19 feet high and weighs 15,000 pounds. The Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial is one of the newest memorials on the National Mall. It opened in 2011. The American Veterans Disabled for Life Memorial was unveiled in 2014. The Main Avenue Fish Market has been operating nonstop since 1805, making it the oldest continuously functioning fish market in the country. The cherry blossom trees that line the tidal basin and have beautiful pink blossoms or blooms every month were a gift from the mayor of Tokyo in 1912. Georgetown is the oldest part of the city, dating back to 1751. D.C. gets 39 inches of rainfall a year and is home to 175 embassies and international cultural centers. 15% of D.C. residents speak a language other than English. All right, so put this on pause. Book a flight or a bus or a chariot. I don't care. Go to D.C. Everyone should see the nation's capital. Uh, Everyone in America should see the uh, American capital. If you're in another country, you should see the capital of your country as well. Uh, So go do that, then come back and listen to the rest of this episode, because after the break, we take measure of the game and counter the expectation for a true literary experience with the short-form crap I write every episode. Guess what, Henry? Terrorists are threatening D.C. with nuclear missiles. Can you believe it? And it's up to me to save the world. Or at least D.C. Insert politician joke here. Alright, we're playing countermeasure for the 5200. Yeah, that's the thing we're doing. There's my tank. There's me blowing up a pillbox. Another pillbox. As with all 5200 games, I'm not crazy about the movement, the joystick. I have a hard time with the whole uh, having to stop and turn your turret thing. The joystick doesn't center itself. But what are you going to do? Too busy saving the world. Very basic looking map, but also kind of compelling. Alright, I'm going to go into the missile silo. Try to enter the launch code. When I was like 10, this would have been amazing. Oh, get enter a code too. L-E-O. 
skull and crossbones, the whole thing. I don't know which part of DC just got wiped out, but my apologies. But then we go right back to the action. I like how the little, when you blow up one of the pillboxes, there's a little flame and rubble that just kind of sits there for a minute. It amuses me. Ah oh, man, I blew up the silo instead of shooting it. And then, instead of doing the code, and then it killed me. And that is the end of that game. DC is dead. I'm dead. But there's more show. Back to you in the studio. Hey, Atari fans. This is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Join Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review cartridge-based games for the Atari's last answer, the 8-bit gaming system, as well as delve deep into their history. Kieran will also introduce everyone to the UK's budget games. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. Second Duck on the Right and Other Very Short Stories is my new short story collection. Duck con artists, zombies, things on fire, supervillain angst, and a future without poop are just a few of the topics in these stories. Also the occasional really bad poem. Waddle on over to your favorite bookseller or swim downstream to my website, tarnivalofgleecreations.com, for more information. Insert quacking up joke here. Here's the thing about countermeasure. I enjoyed it. It is frustrating as all hell uh, for all the reasons that I talked about, meaning the movement of the tank. But the game itself is kind of compelling. I like the, you know, the, the mix of uh, sort of action, shooting stuff, and then entering the code. Yeah, the code's really not that hard, but it's kind of a nice mix. It's cool to watch what happens on screen when you get the code right, the triumphant music, and the change in the radar screen. It's also kind of, it honestly is kind of chilling when you fail and the screen goes red and skull and crossbones comes up and it's kind of a creepy looking thing and uh, uh, it is. I can see where if you cycle through this enough times it maybe gets a little repetitive and boring but I mean you can say that a lot about a lot of Atari games. There is a challenge to be had in uh, figuring out how to do this game so uh, points for that. Um, I think it's a good one. I think I think you all should go play it. I am kind of intrigued to seek out uh, Failsafe for the 7800, he says, as he checks to make sure he hasn't already done that on the podcast. No, no, he is not. So I may do that, and I will probably play this one again as well, which is uh, the true test, right? Replayability. So there you go. You won, countermeasure. It's story time on Atari Bytes. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. This week's story is titled, Measure Twice, Cut Once to the Bone.
The tape measure snaked along the oak 2x4 before retracting into its plastic case with a flick of the wrist, the little hook on the end caught with a final snap. Four feet seven inches, Amy muttered, scribbling the figure onto a piece of paper and holstering the tape measure. She shoved the paper into the pocket of her jeans. A muffled bang, perhaps a truck door slamming or something falling over. Then a whisper on the wind. 1.397 meters. Amy looked around. Did she hear something? No, probably not. She frowned at the project before her, destined to become a chair rail in a rumpus room at this guy's house. What do people do in rumpus rooms? Is there a big problem with chairs banging into walls in rumpus rooms? Whatever. Amy was getting paid. She prepared the saw for the cut, then shook her head. She should take another measurement. Measure twice, cut once, and all that. Four feet six and a half inches, she said to the paper in her pocket. 1.384 meters. Amy's head snapped around. Is someone here? She said. No one answered. Well, now what? Two different measurements. The folks at Measure Twice Cut Once headquarters are feeling pretty smug about now, she reckoned. Laying the tape measure down on the oak, Amy announced to herself, Four feet eight and three quarters inches. How could she have been so far off? A cold chill. 1.441 meters. <sighs> Better check the length of the south wall again. Amy stepped toward the house. The front door was open and there was a figure framed in the doorway? Perhaps? Gone now. Couldn't have been Steve, the owner, Mr. Rumpus Room himself. He was in Helsinki, finalizing the purchase of a slot machine shaped like former Finnish president Tarja Halonen. No one else would be at the house. Steve was single. Go figure. So who did she see? Nobody. That's who she saw. Ease up on the energy drinks, Amy. Making you jumpy. Amy made her way past the hot tub room, the home theater, and the stamp collecting room to finally arrive at the rumpus room. She unsheathed her trusty tape measure, but as she tried to place it to the wall, she froze. What the hell? She said, willing her arms to move to the wall, but un unable to. Did those energy drinks cause a stroke? She shook her head, then her shoulders, were able to move again. Stupid, she muttered. Amy placed the tape measure to the wall. The metal tape slid out with a soothing hiss. The space from one end of the wall to the big bay window that looked out over Steve's indoor rainforest should be about four and a half feet. 1.3716 meters. The momentum of spinning around to confront whatever said that caused Amy to trip over the singing turtle ottoman, which burst into a rendition of I Feel Pretty. Amy stumbled to the floor, then looked up into the face of, what the hell? A gremlin? A leprechaun? A kid in crappy footy pajamas? And whatever it was, wasn't more than two feet away. 0.61 meters. What? Amy asked. The thing grinned. Typical. You see, but you don't accept. Amy stood slowly, eyes locked on the thing before her. Stay there, she said, taking a step back. No less than three feet between us at all times. The thing had really short arms. Amy figured that three feet would be sufficient. 0.914 meters. You, Amy started, unsure where to go from there. Feet are for walking, the thing said. Length and distance are not the same thing. Right, Amy said. Maybe she had inhaled some exhaust fumes from the truck, threw the wrong mushrooms in her pasta last night, whatever. Best just to get back to work.
Amy laid the tape measure against the wall and slid the tape out. She started to read the numbers, but the numbers lifted off the tape, weaving and flickering before her. Digits swirled in front of her. Four feet. No, three feet. Three inches. Ten feet. No. A thud shook the rumpus room. Amy whipped around as the tiny one-foot, 0.3048 meters, tall gremlin slammed an impossibly large foot down on the rumpus room's pirate-themed turpet. You don't get it, do you? The gremlin asked. Feet my ass. More like feet up your ass. He snort laughed a little at that and then wiped away a bit of phlegm with the back of his hand. What do you want from me? Amy asked. I want you to go the distance, the gremlin said, and to know how you got there. Wait, Amy said. Is this that metric versus standard measurement crap? The gremlin doubled over in laughter at that. Trust an American to call what the rest of the world takes as normal crap. Amy slammed the tape measure down on the dusty pink felt of the non-regulation, but still pretty fun after a few dirty martinis, billiard table. You want to change the entire mathematical system on which this country operates? Amy said. The gremlin's minimal shoulders minimally shrugged. I do. You should. But you don't have the courage. It grunted. Amy pushed out a defiant laugh. Well, at least she hoped it was. What I have, she said, is the American need to win. I'll play you for it. What? You. Me. Mano a mano. And the stakes are the system of measurement for the entire world, Amy declared, head swirling. The hell was she doing? Oh well, too late now, she said. Since you're some sort of otherworldly creature, why thank you. And I'm a mere mortal, I get to choose the game. Fine, the gremlin said. Amy reached under the billiard table and pulled out a stack of plastic painter's tarps, which she smacked down on the table. One tarp, though, was splotched with various colors of paint. Red, blue, yellow, green... All in perfect circles. This was no painter's tarp. Twister! Amy shouted. Twister? The gremlin repeated cautiously. I was state champ for four years, Amy said. You scared? My kind invented scared. We deliver scared. We don't receive it. That makes no sense, Amy pointed out. You gonna talk or twist? The gremlin said. Proceed, with the slightest tremor. With a jab of her finger, Amy opened the app on her phone that would spin the dial for them. You, friend, Amy said, can go first. The gremlin's huge feet on tiny legs padded onto the plastic mat. He nodded. The pleasant computer voice on Amy's phone called out serenely, Left hand blue. And the gremlin placed its left hand on a blue circle. Amy stretched her back, shook out her arms and legs, waiting for the app's instruction. Right hand green, the app said. So Amy bent at the waist, tool belt clattering around her, and placed her right hand on a green circle, some distance from the gremlin. It felt good to be on the competitive playing field, or mat, again. Now it was the gremlin's turn. Right hand yellow, the app said. The gremlin's wingspan was truncated, but he found a yellow circle and slapped it with his right hand. Right hand yellow, the app said again, and Amy did the same. How you feeling, Amy said. The gremlin, whose knees were small and old, shook a little. Proceed, it said. Right hand blue, the app told the gremlin, who cursed in gremlish, and moved his hand. This is pointless. You can give up, Amy said, as the app told her to move her left foot to a green circle. She waggled her butt at the gremlin cheekily. Never, the gremlin barked. The app's algorithm landed on a command and instructed the gremlin, left foot red. The gremlin had had enough. As he lifted one weirdly massive foot, 
he whipped around to address the offending cell phone, shouting, 0.305 meters, and then falling off balance, his rotund little body rolling off the mat. And so it was the United States of America avoided the metric system for another hundred years. The gremlin was transferred to the department that handles random letter U's in English words. Steve loved the chair rail. He banged his heart out every night in that rumpus room. Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket, Jeff Fulton, from the Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari podcast. And you are listening to the incomparable William Pepper and his wonderful stories of the game within a game on the Atari Bytes podcast. When you are done here, come visit us in the Vertical Blank. Now, back to Bill. And that's our show. Big thanks to Kevin McLeod and Comptech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, Pinball Spring. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the storytime theme. Head over to Apple Podcasts and counter up how many stars measure the quality of this podcast. Hint, it's five. Five stars. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at ataribytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, check us out on Instagram. Oh, I remember the thing I was going to tell you at the top of the show. Since I recorded last... I appeared on the podcast, Champion Klein, The Airwolf Years. I believe that episode came out the same day or the day after my last episode came out. So if you haven't gone to listen to that yet, do that. Uh, Dave and Greg are awesome. Uh, I had a fun time talking about a, an episode of 80s television, and you should go check it out. Uh, it's The Airwolf Years. Go find it wherever you like to get podcasts. Uh, I feel so much better now. Anyway, what was I talking about? You can call and talk to me if you want. Now, you can't really call and talk to me. You can call and talk to a voicemail system, 563-265-1978. Leave a message about whatever you want, because I am never, ever going to answer the phone, which is just kind of my general rule in life anyway. But specifically for this, I don't answer the call. 563-265-1978. Leave a message about pretty much anything, and I will probably play it on the show and we will all be better for it. Check out the website, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. You can find out more about this show and get links to episodes. You can find out about my other show. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. You can learn about books I've written, like Second Duck on the Right and other very short stories, and get links to just a few of the places that you can order those books. And there's other stuff over there, too, that you should go put into your internet brain the little part of your brain, who are we kidding, the big part of your brain that gets stuff from the internet, there is more stuff from the internet about me that you can put in there. You should also, while you're wandering the internet, consider supporting this show by helping to keep the lights on in the studio as a subscriber over there on the Atari Bytes page on patreon.com, link in the show notes of course. If you do that, you can join an exclusive club of fine folks who all have my great thanks including Michael Tyler, Jose Cazeta, Sean uh, Jose Cazeta, Sean Courtney, M. West, Jeremy L., Mark Super, and Jim Goble. Good folks, one and all. All right, next time on Atari Bytes. It's June, 
and longtime listeners of the podcast know that this means it is Intellivision Month. We are uh, in the month of June every year. We devote the uh, each episode to an Intellivision game. Uh, as you know, I've told the story many times. I'll probably tell it again next episode. Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't get an Atari first. I got an Intellivision, or actually a, a Sears Telegames, I believe, because Dad, a career Sears man, said, no, uh, Atari's fine, but they got this new thing coming out. Uh, it's going to be great. Let's wait and do that. So we did, and I liked it fine, and I still have the console and a handful of games, and I've acquired more games as an adult, and uh, it seems a shame just to let them sit there and not share them with the world. So... Uh, we set aside the episodes in June every year for those games. And this June is no different. We're going to kick off the two episodes that come out in June with Space Hawk. If you guys have thoughts about Space Hawk or anything related to the Intellivision or anything really at all, I've already told you how to get a hold of me, and you should do that. So that's next time on the podcast. Until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,